Welcome to With Intent, a podcast from the Institute of Design at Illinois Tech about how design permeates our world, whether we call it design or not. My name is Jared Fuller, and I am your guest host for With Intent's second season. This season, I am turning the mics back on ID's faculty for a series of roundtable discussions and interviews that explore questions facing designers, design educators, and design students today. Today we are talking about human-centered design. Across every design field, at every level, we can hear about this idea of human-centered design. But what does that term really mean? How is human-centered design different than just any other type of design? And perhaps more importantly, is human-centered design really the goal that we should be focused on? Does it somehow overlook non-human design, for example, or ignore environmental issues? How can we think about design that is perhaps ecology-centered, or as one of my guests refers to it today, humanity-centered design? To talk through these questions, I am joined by ID faculty Ruth Schmidt and Carlos Teixeira. Ruth Schmidt has been teaching at ID since 2009 and developed courses in behavioral design, communication theory, and semiotics. Her current research is on the intersection of what she calls humanity-centered design with behavioral economics. Carlos Teixeira joined ID in 2016 and works across design strategy, open innovation, and sustainable solutions, and is the faculty director of Action Labs. His current research revolves around the question, how can design affect the lives and well-being of people and communities by leveraging the interconnectivity of markets, technology, environment, finance, and social networks? And that is the question that we use in many ways to guide this conversation. So here is my conversation with Ruth and Carlos. Ruth, I want to start with a question for you. This episode is centered around human-centered design and sort of what that means and the limits of that and where we go with that. And as I was preparing for this, Ruth, I noticed in your bio that you say that you're interested in something called humanity-centered design. And I was wondering if you could talk about what humanity-centered design is and that choice of the word humanity over the more common usage of human-centered design, if there's some thinking behind that. Uh, yes, yeah, so it is intentional. And it's, it's funny because when I was uh, learning about human-centered design. I actually graduated from the program that I now teach. So I got a master's here at ID. And human-centered design was the name of the game. That that really was where the action was at the time. Um, but yeah, more recently, I think partly because of where human-centered design as a whole is going, and also partly because of where my natural interests and research were leading it's kind of been demonstrated in a variety of settings, some ways more dramatic than others, that only designing for humans can actually lead us down kind of a dangerous path because we satisfy human needs at the expense of others and others being non-human elements like the planet. It can also mean that we're not thinking about systemic effects. And, you know, you could argue that human-centered design has actually led to a bunch of kind of dangerous habits when it comes to using digital devices, for example, you know, we can lean into human tendencies by having them, you know, use infinite scroll. And we all know that that's actually right. not such right. a great right. thing for people to do. So yeah, humanity-centered design is intentional. It's probably also a part step to mm. the right place where we want to go. But essentially the intent behind it was to say, okay, look, humans are still important. And my particular area of research is around behavioral design. So 
yeah, there are people, you know, where there are people, there's behavior, where there's behavior, there are people, so we're not throwing them away. But it's also an effort to connect what has normally been centered on people to say like, okay, there's, humanity is a much bigger set of concerns because it's about maybe the sustainability of our planet or how we interact and work in systems. So it's it's a part step there, um, but at least, yeah, it's, it's getting at a, the, the, the bigger picture, I think, than human-centered design is capable of saying. Right. And I want to come back to a lot of things that you actually said there, but let me ask you one other quick question before I sort of turn it over to Carlos with another question. So much of your work is about this intersection or overlap or relationship between behavioral science and design. Could you talk a little bit more about those two fields and how you sort of work across them and how you see those coming together? What does that actually look like in your work? Yeah, the behavioral design is a fairly new field. So it came out of, um, I I sometimes joke, I'm actually older than behavioral science (laughs) 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 because the the field itself kind of started in the 70s. Um, And basically it's a very, it's a much more scientific way of understanding people's behavior. So it's looking at all the ways in which we're quote unquote irrational by saying, okay, you know, it's, uh, we grab the cookie instead of the apple, even though we know we shouldn't, we're terrible about planning for the future, even though we know better. So there's a whole field basically that's saying, how do we understand all of these tendencies that we have that are not necessarily in our best interest? And we know that, and yet we still act in ways that are unhealthy. And, um, it, that, that field kind of hit the mainstream in about 2008, which is when I was here getting my master's. So part of the answer to your question is that I, I was already steeped in human-centered design. I started to become aware of this other field, and they're a beautiful complement. For people of a certain age, when I say it's like peanut butter getting in your chocolate and chocolate getting in your <laughs> peanut butter, not everyone gets that commercial metaphor anymore, but um, they're this, it's a really beautiful way of understanding different aspects of how people act, make decisions and make judgments. Oh, interesting. Uh, So I've kind of, I rode that wave basically. So what I do now, um, after spending a bunch of time using those insights in professional practice, I now focus on essentially how do I make designers conversant and comfortable with behavioral science so they can bring that into their practice. And then the other half of it is how do I talk to behavioral scientists and sort of help them understand the importance and the value of design? That Mm. if you're only designing for behavior, you're actually leaving a bunch of really, really important stuff out. So it's, it's sort of cross, uh, I talk to different audiences in different ways, but it's, it's really the conversation between those two fields that I think is really rich and really exciting. I mean, maybe this is like an interesting way to connect to the work that Carlos is doing. So Carlos, on your on your bio, it says that your research is centered around this question, how can design affect the lives and well-being of people and communities by leveraging the interconnectivity of markets, technology, environment, finance, and social networks? Uh, and so I'm going to I'm going to ask you that. <laughs> how can design affect the lives and well-being of people and communities by leveraging the interconnectivity of markets, technology, environments, finance, and social networks. What does uh, what does that research look like right now? Uh, great, great question. And <laughs> it's your question, Carlos. That was your question. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's a, um, to put a little bit in, in context. Um, this question it's based on trying to move uh, the understanding of products and services beyond the initial 
industrial design that was focusing a lot on the product in itself, designing the products for industrial production. And then on the second stage, you have the human-centered design approach, understanding those products as they interact with humans in their daily lives and their experiences. But what we are seeing is that uh, those products, they, in reality, they happen at the intersection of multiple systems. Mm. So I like to think about uh, products and service as things in context, things in, in a larger context, and them uh, playing a major role of, of being at the intersection of those uh, multiple systems. Examples of that is if you just think about like bike sharing, bike sharing, we can think about a service uh, for micro mobility, but in reality, it's something that has uh, multiple intersections. It's related to payments that you do. It relates to exercise that you use the bike. It relates to uh, mobility and it relates to commerce, depending on where you're putting those bike stations and the local commerce that you are enabling around that. So um, when you start to look about those products and service in the larger context that they exist, not only as it relates to the user experience, then you're going to see that there are multiple intersections happening right. uh, over right. there. The type of challenge that we have now require us to think this uh, new paradigm of products and services, those large intersections. There's something that's sort of coming through in both of your answers to that first question that I would love to sort of run by you. I, something that I have sort of, uh, I've said this to my students and I say this sort of flippantly and it's a little bit of a joke, but, but not really, is that a lot of what we call human-centered design is really a sort of like corporation-centered design. And so, Ruth, that's like your example of the the sort of like infinite scrolling. And I think, you know, when, when we don't think about design in these systems and in these contexts, often this, what we are centering is profit, attention, eyeballs, uh, you know, kind of things like that. And I'm wondering if, if either of you have thoughts on that and sort of, Ruth, I want to, I want to, take it to you first because you said something about sort of the direction that human-centered design was going was why you were sort of interested in this new term humanity-centered design. What do you think about sort of this trajectory of human-centered design and its sort of relationship to, in most cases, to kind of profit and, and business uh, sort of business use cases? It's a, a really wonderful question in part because there are probably many causes. Part of it though, and it's interesting because even this I think is part of the DNA of ID, where design and business and strategy were very much part of, like mm -hmm. Jay Doblin uh, was here and led the school for several years, sort of generations of designers ago at this point. But the idea that you could combine business and design and strategy was at the time really new and exciting and novel. And maybe what we're seeing is kind of that that urge and that instinct, which is interesting and powerful, but also has maybe kind of gone off <laughs> and sort of taken on a life of its own. Because yeah, it's, it's interesting, even as I think about where our students graduate or where they go after they graduate, many of them are now very excited and interested in things like social innovation and civic design, but there's still a pretty hefty set. Um, and I was one of these people who went into consulting for example. And so I think how mm. 
clients have directed human-centered design or how human-centered design, because people need to get jobs after graduating, (laughs) ends up, you know, you end up being working in the service of somebody who, yes, is there to make a profit. And using human-centered design, maybe in ways that are not, you know, it's not about evil or good, but certainly kind of taking the skill set of what designers are good at and sending it in a direction where, yeah, there is a lot of capitalist momentum (laughs) behind where design is going because eyeballs, you know, getting eyeballs on things and selling things that people want to purchase has gotten very, very intertwined, I think, with with where human-centered design has kind of led. So it's not exclusive to that, but um, that's definitely been a contributing factor. Carlos, I want to hear your thoughts on this, but I want to come back to what you're saying about sort of the business side of this, because I don't, I think it's easy to just, you know, to just sort of push that aside, but that's sort of a part of it. Also, Carlos, do you have, do you have sort of thoughts on this? I mean, especially thinking about this contextual thinking about design, how that maybe shifts what we mean when we say human centered or my sort of tongue in cheek term corporation centered. Yeah, no, I think that uh, Ruth already covered uh, very uh, important and, and relevant points. I would like to expand on what she was saying by saying that uh, one of the key novelties about human-centered design was the idea that when we are designing, we need to shift our focus from looking at the product in itself and um, considering more the products in the context of daily activities. Right. So this notion of human-centered design uh, was not a commercial issue, was not a corporate issue. It was more about how to understand the products as they exist Mm -hmm. and the role that the agency that they have on the daily life of people. So the shift towards activities, we have to keep in mind that products in the past, they were designed as the result of industrial production and as also part of market competition. So everything was about what is the market share, uh, where um, and how do we beat the competition? When you start to shift, and and this not necessarily always created the best type of products for the consumer. It's just like creating something that compete better in the marketplace. The shift into the activities made everybody start to focus on the user this became picked up by the corporations right. as a business strategy. So um, innovation started to emerge by looking at the activities and finding uh, b- products that fit better in the daily life of people and entire markets could be created around that. So we didn't have much about this concept of um, uh, breakthrough innovations because um, it was all about competition. The other thing that I want to highlight that um, human-centered design and the focus on activities was happening at um, the same time that digital technology was emerging. Right. And digital technology was very disruptive in terms of how we do things in our daily lives. We might think about kind of the uh, digital natives these days, uh, but um, if you go back 30 years ago, the fact that you could buy an airline ticket online, right. it was something that was very different from you having to uh, to plan ahead, go to a travel agency and get a paper ticket and all that. So a lot of behavior was changing. So daily activities were being changed. And so there was this perfect marriage between design, the 
transformations of digital technology, the disruptions of daily practice through the, the digital technology, and the ability of design focus on the activities rather than the products. So it was interesting marriage that corporate America pick up that and then um, it rolled out. I think that uh, there is a still a need for all the other sectors, such as government and society, to pick up on that focus on the activities. Yeah. I mean, do you have a sense of like, and, and I'm making a blanket statement here because I think there are still you know, certainly designers who are, who are operating that way, but how to kind of get back to this idea of focusing on activities about sort of making things more streamlined, easier, et cetera, responding to the needs of people as opposed to sort of market share. It seems like some of that has gotten lost in sort of the discourse and, and the education. How are you, you know, making sure that stays a focus in the classroom or do you see ways to sort of course correct some of this a little bit? I think that this know-how of designing, of doing human-centered design, I think it's well, very well established. So it's a matter of educating a, a larger group of professionals, leaders in all sectors. So I think this is still an ongoing process. The problem with that direction is that at the same time that we are still growing the use and application of human-centered design, we are also discovering what are the limitations of that. Mm. So there's this kind of disparity mm-hmm. and this kind of um, dichotomy between this focus on activities are very important and they, they can really improve the quality of life and the products, but we are detecting also that there are unintended consequences of focusing on the user experience. For example, uh, when we design for the user, a lot of the drivers of that is convenience. So making everything very convenient for the user. Uh, One of the unintended consequences of convenience is that we can generate a lot of waste for us to make, like think about when you you, uh, carry out food, you'd have a lot of package and you eat a meal and uh, two minutes or five, 10 minutes later, you are disposing a lot of materials. Right. So convenience is an example that it's made wonders focusing on the activity, but it created, started to create unintended consequences such as environmental degradation and the waste that we generate. If you think about the bike sharing example that I gave, and people having the convenience of paying with credit card. Mm. This is fantastic, but this is also discriminatory because people that don't have credit, they don't have a credit card. And so people without credit and financial inclusion or financial access, they are discriminated on the ability of using bike sharing. So those are are things that we were not aware that we were creating as a consequence of focusing so much on the daily activities and became something that privileged the ones that can be consumers, consumers that can afford the better quality products. That's so interesting. And I think it like sort of hits to what Ruth was talking about with this sort of sh- slight shift from human-centered, which sounds like the sing- a single person, <laughs> to humanity-centered, where it is about all of us collectively, what does that mean when we're kind of thinking about 
us as a species as opposed to us as a human, which, which you know, sort of our default is to think about convenience and streamlining. And I'm wondering if, if that can even be pushed further. And Ruth, you started to get to this in your first answer, but like, what does a, a eco-centered design look like or, or a, you know, environment-centered design where it is not... It is not saying that humans are not important or are not the user, but sort of decenters that immediate convenience in realization to all of those unintended consequences that that Carlos is talking about. Ruth, do you have thoughts on that? Oh, I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. Um, no, I mean, I think part of what, uh, and this is maybe building on what Carlos was saying also, that's kind of a key aspect to this, because Carlos, you mentioned the sort of rise of digital technology. And I would even argue that, you know, questions about what progress even looks like mm. are really important mm -hmm. to consider here because we tend to consider progress. Like, how do I do it faster? How do I get more cheaper? Like all of these things that right. feel beneficial to that end consumer maybe, but are at the risk of or at the expense of larger systems. So I think that's one kind of piece of it is even to think about what progress really should mean and not to equate it with technology mm. or with bigger, faster, cheaper, which is where it tends to go. But yeah, another aspect, you know, again, building off of Carlos, what you were describing too, is that in trying to make things faster, more streamlined, A, we, we don't always recognize the importance of reflection. I actually think that's an incredibly important part of design, both as a designer, but also just, well, as a person, as a human. We don't often get the chance to reflect when things are happening in a speedy way. I mean, anyone, this is not to pick on Amazon, but anyone who has, you know, one-click Amazon setup, right, it, right. it means you think it and it's purchased. Like there's no friction to that process. And that can be you know, both for the sustainability reasons and the waste reasons, but also it can mean that we we don't always temper our own behavior and we don't always think as carefully as perhaps we ought about, do we actually need that thing? Mm. Um, or, or are we just getting it because it's quick? And one kind of last thought maybe to add on to that is that, you know, this question about who has access is also incredibly important because increasingly, you know, there's the recognition absolutely that who is considered a viable consumer or who has purchasing power, things like the switch from cash to credit cards, which has been coming up in a variety of ways over the past couple of years is a really great example of that. Because it can seem again, like we're leaning into progress, everything is you wave a phone at something and you can buy it. But it, it leaves whole swaths of populations out. And it means that the increased difference between uh, you know, who the haves and the have nots are enormous. And when that gets built into the infrastructure, I sometimes talk about this notion of choice infrastructure, right. which is basically not targeted behavior change, but sort of all the whole set of conditions that surround how we make decisions or what we have access to. So again, yeah, I guess that sense of humanity is not just about what's good for me or people like me, but recognizing the inequity that gets built into those, into those systems altogether. If human-centered design is not focusing on those things, it's not doing a great job of making sure that we as a society are actually, you know, standing up for what, what we should. It reminds me of, um, there's a line from the systems theorist Stafford Beer. He wrote that the purpose of a system is what it does. 
And like at face value, that seems like, yes, of course, but it, it sort of like raises all these questions about unintended consequences where it's not the, the, the purpose of a system is not what we say it does or what it is supposed to do or what we set out to do, but actually what it does when it is in the world doing <laughs> what it does. And so it like, you know, it raises all these questions about, well, what were these unintended consequences? Is this actually what it was designed to do? And this hits to what you were just talking about with this idea of reflection. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that just a little bit more and, and the need for that, not just in consumers, but also sort of in designers and in the design process. How do you think about that? Or how do you sort of encourage that in the classroom and, and with your students? So in the classroom, yeah, so A, I agree, yeah, it is actually something that I think designers can and should do, and we're maybe sort of the, the barrier between, <laughs> you know, not not uh, letting things go forward that, you know, really do need to be thought. I mean, I, I find it very important, and I realize this is very much from my personal background, too, but I think being a good designer means being a good critical thinker. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm very, I, I, I the, the when I look back to my own classes, whether it was in college, graduate school, or even learning, I realized that the things that make me a really strong designer are kind of less about specific skills, but it's because I've trained myself, and I'm, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal here, is <laughs> the things that I, that I find important are about really taking, looking at all of these things and interrogating the choices you're making, right. and having different lenses to understand the implications of choices and it doesn't because even the term unintended consequences you could argue like maybe they were unintended but sometimes we kind of could have seen that that was going to happen <laughs> exactly it's exactly totally mysterious yeah yeah <laughs> so sometimes yes in the rush to put things into market that can be one component of it but i find also in, in my behavioral design classes in particular a lot of what we work through is how to understand both what it is that we're designing into, but also how to understand, for example, where there are uncertainties right. and how to how to design for uncertainty, both the human kind, but also, you know, again, what are the conditions, what are the infrastructures, and how is that going to support things that maybe we didn't intend, but are likely to happen because we're functioning in spaces that encourage certain kinds of behavior over others. I 100% agree with all of that. I think that's exactly right and sort of, you know, speaks to my own background also. And so I, it was really nice to <laughs> sort of get some confirmation in, in my own thinking. Carlos, I want to connect this to something that you said earlier about thinking about these design systems within particular contexts. And it strikes me that this reflection that Ruth is talking about is a very valuable skill that I think designers you know, try to have. And I'm wondering if, if you see a sort of responsibility or role of the designer to be part of the space for that reflection when they are working in these complex systems where everybody is moving really fast and there's all these different parts and different teams have different goals, uh, where designers or design generally can sort of step in to say, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> like, we need to think about this. Or, you know, there's something there's something about the designer who who can have sort of that that overall view of how these systems are coming together that seems like a an interesting place to start to kind of raise these questions. What do you think? So this is something that we um engage in, in very deep and um, extended conversation with our students because mm. the tendency when we look about those systems 
is for us to try to uh, be the superhero. Uh, position <laughs> design is the one that can understand the whole, can understand all the specifics, can be fully interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, and be at the center and do everything and solve all the problems. So there is this kind of tendency of the superhero and overloading with um, design with multiple areas of expertise. I think this is kind of one very dangerous and very problematic um, extreme. Have, we have a whole, we're going to do a whole episode on the problems with designer as superhero, Carlos. So thank you for previewing that. Yes, wonderful. <laughs> and this also brings the notion that every time that we are talking about those complex issues, we tend to think about that we have to have a theory for everything or the theory of everything. So kind of everything connect to everything, everything can be related. And um, there are a lot of talking points and reflection points. But this is not a liberal art school. So when we are exercising multiple perspectives about the same thing, design is about synthesis, design is about integration, design is about coming up with solutions. So for me, what designers have as a unique position, at least that's how I approach with my students in the classrooms, is to bring the expertise on products and service. I think we have a long history of that. I think we need to be able to leverage that expertise as it relates to systems. So, for example, I see a lot of other fields that they can deal with systems much better than designers. Uh, for example, policymakers, engineers, um, and many others, they can think the totality of systems. Uh, they can think about the parts and their connections. They have ways of measuring those things, uh, like climate. This is something that designers are not going to be expert, period. Okay, But you can bring system thinking to that. What I think is exclusive to designers is that most of the people that are thinking about systems, they are thinking at the macro level and the meso level but they are not thinking at the micro level where products and service exist. And um, when I see everybody explaining uh, complex issues, they always stop at the meso level and they can never explain how the like button has a major impact of how people are categorized in different groups and they, they create echo chambers of discussions that create this kind of very conflicting interaction in social media. This freakless, as Ruth was saying, of the like button is an example. So for me, I think that we have the unique ability of understanding product, service, and communications as they happen at the activity level in everybody's day's, daily life. But we need to be able to connect that into the larger systems understand how this is related to races and mm -hmm. to discriminatory practice, to economic systems, to climate uh, systems, and work with the other disciplines to show how those things in daily life, they have agency in the larger system. So whatever we create here will have impact and have agency. But there is very little talk about that. So for me... As we are entering this new era of design, I strongly believe that uh, designers need to leverage the expertise on product, service, and communication, but they need to contextualize that in larger systems and work with the other disciplines to show the role that those things play in creating impact. 
I love that. I I think that's that's great. And I'm I'm I have a question. This question is for both of you, and I'm not totally sure how to ask it. Ruth, you mentioned this earlier about you know having sort of a consulting background, and both of you have talked about students sort of going into into business settings. And I think it's really easy to you know, like capitalism, like, let's just like stop working in business. And it's not that easy. It's, you know, that's a really complicated problem. I'm I'm wondering, sort of, I want to be careful to not villainize businesses or people who work in those contexts. And I'm wondering about sort of how design can help if they even can, businesses think beyond sort of short-term profit or, you know, Carlos, what you were just kind of talking about, about sort of how this, this service level, the product level can speak to these larger systems. It, how does, how do some of these ideas that are thinking about climate change, thinking about inequalities, thinking about democracy, using sort of this lens of human-centered design in a business context, how do you see those things fitting together? Do you have thoughts on that? I, I can give a stab and we can maybe go back and forth on this because it's, it's A, it's just a huge question. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so part of it is that sort of similarly to Carlos, what you were just describing where there's the uh, macro, meso, micro in terms of you know systems. If we also think about what's happening within commercial organizations, there are decisions that are happening at that high strategic level. There's sort of the middle level of you know deciding how to execute on things or how sort of organizationally they're organized to do that. And then there's the the, the lowest level of like let's actually do those things and get those you know get stuff out the door essentially or making decisions around whatever it is how to build an app or how to deliver services. And part of what I think makes it complicated is that, you know, when we train our students here, they go into practice and whether it's consulting or a commercial setting or a civic setting for that matter, you know, they don't jump right to the top of the food chain. So mm. part of it is also, I think, having right. like how, how design is conceived and seen as a valuable component of, of making things broadly, whether it's experiences, services, offerings, the value of design may look very different and be talked about in a very different way when you're thinking about, you know, designing an app versus how it works in sort of that mid-level of how to bring design and distribute design knowledge within an organization versus how to think about design at a more strategic level. So part of, I think, what makes it a very complicated question, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm answering your question by asking more questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Part of what makes it so challenging is that there's not one kind of design, right? right? So how, right. how people are thinking, you know, the people who are at the, at the top levels of organizations are there primarily to make sure that the business is sustainable, not so much that the world is sustainable necessarily, um, so there can be conflicting tensions there in terms of how people see the value of design, which is itself a Pandora's box, because I think how people even think about how design is valuable has always been a little tricky because it's it's not always easily measurable. Yeah. Um, and so whether that's value towards, you know, really positive, beneficial ends that are more broad and societal, or how we think about design used to create individuals' services or offerings that's that's another part of it too. I, I do know just to sort of close this, and I'd love Carlos to hear what you're thinking as well, that we're having so many more conversations at school about these issues than we certainly did when I was here as a student. 
So for what it's worth, I, do, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm forgetting something, but when I was here about 13 years ago as a student, we just didn't talk as much about power or equity yeah. or how design can both contribute to those or help to, you know, get them yeah. to be more. Relevant. I see that. I see, For what it's worth, I see that too. Yeah. I see that too here. It's the exact so same thing. So there's been a real change, I think, just in terms of like, hey, this is something that we can't control only by ourselves. It is, you know, a much wider range of things, but damn it, we better talk about it because we can't <laughs> yeah. be sending people out into the world who are not considering um, the implications of what they bring. So totally, yeah, totally. Carlos, I'm going to pass it to you because I would love to hear what you, uh, what you think. To, to build up on what Ruth is saying, I think that we have evolved a lot on the uh, aspect, for example, of human-centered design, uh, service design, and um, there is a growing sector of the uh, civic design. So all those things are very useful for what they are for. But I think that there is a need for us to deconstruct all those practices and start imagining new practice. Mm. Because the type of thing that we were discussing before about those infrastructures, about these intersections, about those systems... Um, about those unintended consequences, the new types of solutions. And we haven't even talked today about all the uh, technological developments that are going on and how they they transform uh, the things that we do, that we create, right. and uh, the design practices that are needed. So for me, I think there is a need for deconstructing a lot of the design practices and rebuilding them around the, the new needs. That's one point. Uh, the second point is I strongly believe that what is going to be the way that we're going to deal with those uh, large systems, uh, what I call complex spaces of innovation, because they are uh, at the intersection of multiple systems, we're going to depend on large corporations or large organizations, let me say in that way, to be able to deal with this type of problem. I say large organizations because they are the ones that have the resources, they are the ones that have the talent, they are the ones that can do uh, long-term investment, they have the expertise to do implementation, and they can stand resiliently through a process of transformation. So it can be government agencies, can be universities, can be corporations, foundations. So I strongly believe that those transformations are going to happen through those large organizations. And we have to think about where design is situated in them mm. and how can we have the greatest impact by situating design strategically in where those uh, reframings are happening and the strategic decisions are also uh, taking place. Because I strongly believe that design is the field that's going to bring choices rather than just decisions mm -hmm. uh, to those organizations. And the last point about that is that one of the areas that we haven't considered design at all, and this is a whole new area that we are starting to explore at the Institute of Design, is to understand how design works in investments. Mm. So um, private long-term investment on infrastructures is going to be one of the most transformative forces of the 21st century. And uh, design is not there. Design is not participating on the decisions where investments 
are made and where large sums of capital is put on that is locking in uh, what is going to be supported and develop and encourage and incentivize it in the next 30 to 50 years. So we have been starting to work on this notion of design in um, capital markets, design as it relates to investment and working on the design abilities and design competencies in that area. That's what I'm saying, that we need to deconstruct a lot of the current design practice and reimagine new design practice in different kinds of organizations. I think that's exactly right. And I think this conversation had a risk of being a real downer and being really <laughs> sort, of, sort, of, sort of depressing, talking about the problems with human-centered design and the problems with the environment and social inequalities. And that ended on a really, really nice sort of way forward. And so I think that's a really nice way to end this conversation. Ruth and Carlos, it was really great to hear more about your work and your thinking around these ideas. So thanks for doing this with me. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. With Intent is a production of the Institute of Design at Illinois Tech. This season is produced in collaboration with the school's 85th anniversary as part of the 2022-2023 Latham Fellowship. A special thanks to all of our guests this season and everyone at ID for their support. My name is Jared Fuller. Thanks for listening.